and welcome to an episode of Canada mit C, or in English, Canada with a C. Canada mit C is a podcast series by the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung Canada. My name is Annika Vekinis. I'm the project manager of the CAS Canada office based here in Ottawa. In today's episode, we will talk about a recently published open access book entitled Does the United Nations Model Work? Challenges and Prospects for the Future of Multilateralism. The book is composed of original articles from scholars and policy notes from practitioners based on the contributions to the conference, the UN at 75, Challenges and Prospects for the Future of Multilateralism, organized by the International Political Science Association, or in short, IPSA in 2020. The book was published by Brill and attempts to draw up the state of multilateralism through the United Nations model and identify potential ways to address its challenges and shortcomings. The contributors questioned the role of multilateralism, sometimes accused of being fragmented, inefficient and unrepresentative, and its impact on global governance, democracy, trade and investment, the environment and human rights. In today's episode, we will hear from one of the co-editors of the book, Dr. Fontaine Skronsky, who is also the executive director of IPSA. We will also speak to two of the book authors, Marcello Scarone and Dr. Elizabeth Blattgut. Mr. Scarone is an international affairs, social, economic and public policy expert, a university lecturer and the former chief at UNESCO. Dr. Blattgut is an associate professor of political science at Concordia University. You can find their complete bibliographies in the podcast description. The questions for today's interview will be asked by Dr. Norbert Eschborn, who is the director of the Konrad Adenauer Stift in Canada and also co-editor of the book. Norbert, over to you now. Welcome to another episode of Canada mit C, Canada with a C. Today it's about the United Nations. And uh, I'd like to start the interview by asking our experts here, We all know that the United Nations are generally a difficult subject. More and more people are nowadays questioning their relevance. And when I presented this book we are talking about today to the administrator of the United Nations Development Program, Achim Steiner, he answered me that, uh, in his opinion, the organization is in such a critical state that good wishes alone for the future of the United Nations is not enough anymore. What do you think about that and why then a book on this subject? Thank you, Norbert, and thank you uh, for this uh, great opportunity to be able to uh, participate in this podcast on uh, the book that we co-edited. Um, I'm Kim Fontaine-Skronsky, uh, Executive Director of the International Political Science Association, and this is a very <clears throat> pertinent question in today's, uh, in today's world. Um, I don't know if we should be, uh, I think I agree that we should not be wishing the United Nations well, but rather look at what is, uh, how it was created, why it was created, uh, and uh, what can be done to uh, reform or transform it to um, cater or to reflect uh, today's uh, international scene. Um, this is the reason why we wanted to do this book. This book is actually the result of a conference that we held in 2020 to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. And uh, we thought this was a very good moment to uh, gather uh, academics, but also practitioners, some of whom had worked in the UN system, to gather them uh, to discuss the future of the UN 
which, as you all know, was uh, created after World War II uh, in a geopolitical world that is much different than today. So I think the um, it is very pertinent to have worked on this book and to and to offer these diverse views on how we can reform and better the UN system. So a bit like on the sort of optimistic side and maybe even a little bit more on the naive side, I think the UN today is still as relevant as ever, maybe not perfect, but still highly relevant given the number of global crises that we're facing right now between war, climate change, migration. I think it may be maybe perhaps the worst except for all the others. And so again, I think at this point in time, we still need this organization to deal with all these complex, interdependent, multivalent crises. There's, just, there's no other organization out there that has the capacity, has the scope, has the reach. Um, and so again, I think while it's, it's not uh, not perfect, it certainly has sort of lots of room for improvement, that it, it is strictly necessary, um, especially for focusing on the agencies as opposed to thinking about kind of the, the Security Council, the General Assembly, which again, may be more talk shops, but I think there's a lot of being done in these agencies. And I guess the other consideration is that the time, effort, and money that would be required to build a replacement, I think, is lacking right now, especially since um, there's not, I guess, a sort of willingness to cooperate among the great powers. I'm not even sure we would know who the great powers are this time to create such an organization. So I guess I think short of, of having something else to replace it, we can't really throw it away yet. Well, following up on that, and, and thank you, Norbert, and thank you to the Conrad Adenauer-Stiftung for, for uh, allowing us to, to participate. Following up on what our colleagues are saying, I would actually slightly disagree with the Heimsteiner that it's too late to wish the organization just, just to wish it well uh, for two reasons. Number one, it's because, as my colleague said, the organization is still as permanent, uh, as pertinent as ever and needs to be supported uh, in every way possible. And the reason I say it's not uh, that it, it's that I wouldn't agree that it's too late to just wish it well is that from the very beginning, from 1945, I hope that people didn't just wish it well. Indeed, this is an organization that needs to be supported from the beginning, an organization that does, as my colleague just said, much more than just be a talk shop and just much more than being an organization to promote peace around the world. It's an organization that, as we'll see, has a lot of other mandates, a lot of other activities. And therefore, just wishing it well would be just saying, well, they're nice guys, but we can't do too much anyways, whereas they really have a role to play. And I think our role as an international community is not just to wish it well, but also to support it in many different ways. Kim, it is noticeable that the authorship of the 17 contributions of this book is very diverse. Is this a concession to the zeitgeist or what other reasons uh, did these choices have? Well, the UN itself is very diverse, uh, so it was important for us to have um, a diverse uh, authorship. Um, we are actually very happy to have been able to um, have authors from uh, all parts of the world, from North and South America, from Europe, from Africa, uh, and also 50, more than 50% of the contributors are women. And one of the originality of this book as well is to bring together practitioners and academics. So not to have only the research uh, approach or the research view, but also uh, the view from those who have evolved and worked uh, within the UN system. And we have a few of these practitioners, but also most of the authors uh, come from uh, external, externally from the United Nations. So we also have a very diverse array of, uh, of views and on different topics as well. I mean, uh, as my colleagues say, 
the UN, uh, there are a lot of issues that they, that they deal with. And so it was important to look at not just the functioning of the UN itself, but also the different issues that they have to tackle, whether it's human rights, uh, whether it's migration, uh, of course, environmental governance and climate change, uh, digital technologies. So I think the, the vast area of, of actors within the UN and also of the issues mandated us to have a very diverse, uh, diverse book. Elizabeth and Marcello, the term multilateralism appears prominently in the title of the book. It has been used a lot in international politics in recent years, mainly to evoke the spirit of cooperation among the international community in solving global problems. What assessment of its meaning today do you come to now that the book is available? Great, thanks. I think it's changed. I think we have multiple different types of multilateralism at this point in time. There's sort of no one canonical thing. Um, I think we're seeing more types of actors, especially lots more small, very local, so municipal, as, as Henri Paul Dumerden talks about, um, lots more civil society organizations. So I think, again, it's, it's a sort of a rich, thick fabric at this point in time. Um, I guess I would say that maybe it's fractured at the highest levels. So again, as we're seeing increased tensions and competition between the United States, China, Russia, um, again, maybe there's new hope with the more recent meetings between Biden and Xi. And, and maybe, again, there's there's, there's a sort of chances for more multilateral cooperation there. But I think even as we're having some problems or breaks at the top, we're seeing really dense connections, lots of exchanges, new networks at sort of lower levels. Um, so if you think, think about kind of the sort of the, the growth of the Internet, we think about, and they're saying right now that, that in the United States with the Thanksgiving travel, there's more travel than ever. So plane travel is up. Um, people are moving around. There's lots of mobility, both positive and the negative when it comes to migration challenges. Um, and I think we also learned that that based upon the pandemic experiences, that supply chains are more integrated. Now, maybe, again, some of these these sort of not so happy experiences might lead to this decline. But I think that the types and nature of multilateralism is sort of thick and rich. First of all, I fully agree with Elizabeth that the notion, the term, or at least the definition of multilateralism has changed a lot over the years, particularly, I would say, in recent times. If we look at the original uh, definition of multilateralism, it's perhaps the word that best describes the original United Nations, uh, a, a forum where countries from all over the world would meet, would be basically on an equal basis. Well, of course, we say jokingly that some are more equal than others, but obviously, that they're one country, one vote, that idea where everybody, whether you're big or small, has something to say, that for me represents the original and, in my opinion, still the most desirable definition of multilateralism. But then all the things that Elizabeth mentioned are true. Our world has changed so much that now multilateralism doesn't, doesn't only refer to a number of countries, uh, diverse countries uh, cooperating together, but all these other actors, all these other actors, be it economics, civil society, uh, even uh, even on an individual level sometimes, obviously participating in what we call the debates of the international community. And I would argue that even if we bring it back to just states, there's also the problem, and this ties directly to some of the perhaps troubles of the United Nations, is that multilateralism is becoming a little bit less multi nowadays, in the sense that much of the discussions or ideas that were done universally or globally by the United Nations on a real multilateral basis are now handled by a group of select countries, be it the G7, the G20, or other groups of smaller countries. And they them themselves have now become the so-called international community, 
or the multilateral discussions at the expense of what? At the expense of 193 countries truly acting on a multilateral way. So there are changes in uh, both in reality and in definition, in my opinion. Elizabeth, one of the common preconceptions about the United Nations is that good work is being done in its sub-organizations and in its many decentralized locations around the world and that presentable results are being achieved, just not at its headquarters in New York. And this is blamed on the often controversial and often inconclusive deliberations of the Security Council, which frequently dominate the world news. Does this book address this problem? And if so, what are the conclusions or the recommendations? So I think many times right, people like to be more positive rather than, than negative or critical. So I think the book tackles this problem both directly and indirectly. I think oftentimes by focusing less on how to fix the UN Security Council, which might not be possible to fix, given it does have this inherent contradiction at its very core between the fact that it has to balance out power and will, that it has to balance out sort of the ability to protect sovereignty as well as resolve conflicts. So I think many of the authors, rather than focusing upon or sort of too much upon this sort of this core problem, instead look at some of the good works that, again, these agencies are doing. And so talking about the fact that even if, if we have some uh, maybe dysfunction or lack of, of cooperation at the highest level, there's, there's still many agencies that are out doing fantastic things. I think this also means that the book does tend to focus on some of the issues that are not as core to traditional security. So it might be considered human security or things that we're now thinking about as security, but didn't sort of in, in sort of the 40s and 50s. So there's lots and lots of great work about trade and the ability of the UN agencies to, if not uh, sort of solve all the issues around trade, at least provide a focal point or an institution in which organizations can work together to resolve some of these disputes. So there's great chapters here by um, sort of Michelle Rio, and there's also work by, by Maria Abbas that are looking at, again, sort of the ways that these institutions might adapt a bit in order to handle new developmental challenges too. Um, there's also again lots of work about the SDGs, and so looking at sort of development goals, having very specific, concrete, actionable items that can be worked across the, the, the UN system, as well as multiple different agencies that can be tied in in terms of, of civil society organizations. So there's great chapters here by Valerie Antoul. Mandy Boss again talks about how, again, the UN is still able to, to deal with these, these challenges. Um, and then and looking at climate change. Uh, so there's a chapter by Walter, Walter Avrilo Ramirez. Again, in, in some of these cases, it's not looking at the, sort of the UN as the sort of solution or the UN as the key actor that has to do everything, but instead maybe the UN should be considered instead of framework for action. So by setting up structures, by setting up arenas where people can get together to cooperate, um, again, climate change is a great chapter by Patricia Iglesias, who looks at how Brazil has taken up some of the challenges set out by the United Nations, um, but is doing it at more of a local level. So again, sort of Hannah Paul's Nordem's chapter as well. Again, something for migration, there's a chapter by Mnet Gebre, which looks at, again, how the UN might serve as an orchestrator or, again, a central meeting point in order to combine resources. Think about the UN to be more as a traffic controller, as even like a sort of old-fashioned telephone operator by making the network connections in order to help people work on these challenges. And again, I think the UN has a special role to play here in large part because it's one of the few organizations that has that scope and reach across the world, but also across issues. And so it's able to connect pieces in these more complex challenges. So again, I think not so much maybe about trying to solve this sort of potentially unsolvable problem at the very, very top, but again, linking together lots and lots of different pieces of the system and using, using these agencies for their success. Marcello, the United Nations was essentially a product of the post-1945 world order and adapted to the circumstances of that time. 
is this still suitable today or is there a greater need for reform? And if so, does the book address this and what are the recommendations? Well, there are, there are a number of questions in there, obviously, in your question, Norbert. And uh, the first one is perhaps the one that is the big subject of debate about the relevance of the United Nations. Like you say, it was created in 1945 to address a post-World War II Cold War uh, international order. And obviously, it would be foolish to say that today the world is just like in 1945 or 1950. Obviously, the world has changed a lot. So in that sense, yes, there are new realities that mean that perhaps the United Nations, at least in its political and peace-maintaining uh, uh, areas, definitely needs to adapt to new realities. But I would argue, I would go a little bit against the, the conventional wisdom, and I would argue that while the world today is very different from 1945, uh, the role of the United Nations, it's still largely the same. In what sense? In the sense that Basically, in 1945, under the post-World Order, it was a place for discussion. It was a forum for cooperation between two or, or three rival ideological uh, powers, if you like, or, or blocks in the world. While the Cold War and the ideological debate is largely over, at least at the international level, there still is today divisions in the world. They're maybe not based on visions of society. They might be based on power uh, struggles, on economic issues, and so on. But there clearly is a new style of Cold War or, or at least international rivalry. And there, the United Nations still has a huge role to do exactly what it was doing in the 1950s. It is bringing countries together to discuss these differences rather than have them fight it out, obviously, militarily. Now, as for your second question, which is the one I find even more uh, relevant in a certain way, it is also tied to what Elizabeth was just saying to the answering to the last question. There is, of course, the entire United Nations system, other than the Security Council, other than the General Assembly, which by virtue of the United Nations Charter being very difficult to change and to modify, there is the entire system. And by system, I mean all the agencies, and in particular, and I personally worked in one of them, the secretariats, the secretariats, in other words, the actual day-to-day -day work of these agencies, whether it's humanitarian, human rights, uh, economic development issues, you name it, climate uh, change nowadays, of course. And there, that's where not only a lot of good work can be done, but also where a lot of reform is needed. I address this in my chapter in the book, but I also uh, see that other of my co-authors uh, have done this as well. There is a need to perhaps inside the United Nations itself, I don't mean the countries uh, participating in debates, but the, the actual staff and the actual secretariats of the United Nations, perhaps going a little bit back to the basics of what they're supposed to do, which is basically to get back to the real issues, to whether it's intellectual debates, whether it is humanitarian actions, whether it's hands-on work, and perhaps work a little bit less, or worry, sorry, a little bit less about political uh, divisions or ideological divisions and more about actually going back to the actual day-to-day -day work without necessarily falling into the trap of just seeking publicity or trying to be visible or these type of things. This is something that in many of the especially specialized agencies has become an issue. The debate between do we want maximum visibility for the United Nations or do we want actual uh, work being done even if that work is not very visible. So there is, I think, a need for reform from the inside. And of course, of course, there is need for reform administratively and financially. Things have to be managed in a better way. But there are, I think, other debates than just whether 
we should reform or not reform the Security Council or reform or not reform the General Assembly. Kim, you have deliberately chosen open access as the form of publication for this book. The International Political Science Association, uh, where you serve as executive director, has recently been promoting this form of publication. Why is that? Yes, well, um, open access publishing um, is revolutionizing, actually, scientific publications, and it has been for you know many, many years, and it is gaining speed. Uh, so I think as an association, uh, we have to embrace this change. This is a result of, you know, the digital revolution. And there are some benefits to open access publishing. It's uh, a way to democratize um, scientific knowledge, to, uh, to open, uh, you know, the research that is being done uh, to more people. And with uh, increasing access, access to Internet everywhere in the world, this is, this is a benefit. This is a good thing. Of course, there's also some disadvantages, and um, and mainly because of the uh, the transformation of the business models for many uh, um, scholarly associations, like the International Political Science Association, but also for authors, for researchers, for scholars. Uh, it is quite a revolution, and we have to think of ways on how to embrace this model, but also on how to survive with this model. Uh, and in this sense, um, IPSA organized a conference in 2022 on open access publishing, and we invited authors, scholars, uh, publishers, editors, and other scholarly associations to discuss uh, the many advantages, but also the challenges that we face with this uh, with this model of uh, of publication. So uh, we are embracing it instead of being afraid of it, and we are trying to um, uh, not only to open up and democratize the, the information, but also to look with our partners, with sister organizations, other scholarly organizations and associations on how to make this model work for the future. Perhaps the last uh, item on this particular question is, um, you know, there is a paradox about open access publishing because yes, it is more open and accessible, but also authors and researchers now have to pay to have their research published. So there is this paradox of maybe inequality as well uh, in, uh, in, um, in a trend that actually wants to equalize or make, make information more accessible. So those are all these questions that we are uh, thinking and reflecting on with our partners. Elizabeth and Marcello, What are the target groups of this publication and um, what particular benefit uh, can they derive from it? A little bit about it here. Kim has to sort of say the negative, but I get to say the positive. I, mean, I think the fact that it's open access increases the audience and the potential enormously. So I think we can reach out to not just academics who would get it from their library, but practitioners who can now access this at any point in time through a quick Google search as they're looking at specific problems or questions. I guess, to me, one of the most interesting target audiences would be for students. So using this in different kinds of levels of coursework, um, I think, I guess, I take hope from the fact that Model United Nations seem to be as popular as ever post-pandemic. And so I think the next generation is really excited about the UN, sees its possibilities and its opportunities. And so I think this is a great source of interesting questions and discussions to kind of spark their thinking about reform. But again, I think just to that one kind of simple marker, if, if, if students are that interested in Model UN, there's definitely still something there for the next 75 years. 
I, I would definitely agree with Elizabeth about that. About that. Uh, definitely, uh, especially you know, the students these days with, with the model UN popularity and so on would greatly benefit from it. I would obviously caution that given the very high level of the different chapters of the book, you know, written by excellent authors, obviously there certain needs to be a certain level of perhaps knowledge or at least interest or uh, ability to understand many of the issues discussed in the book. So obviously maybe it's not for high school students, uh, maybe it's more for, you know, university level students. But I would also argue that besides those obvious uh, uh, people who could benefit from this, I would argue that perhaps some of the professors themselves at the universities would maybe through this book, because what's wonderful about this book is that it presents obviously academic points of view, but also practitioner, practitioner's point of view. So basically to see maybe sometimes the UN in action or things like that would also benefit some of the teachers or professors who would otherwise obviously just be looking at basically the international law theoretical components of the United Nations without looking at the practical level. I would argue maybe one last target group, and here I might go out a little bit on a limb, maybe the United Nations itself. And by United Nations itself, I mean many of the employees or perhaps managers at different levels at the various UN agencies to see what maybe the outside community thinks of what they're actually doing and how they're doing it and what the issues or problems are as well too. So perhaps we don't think that the UN personnel itself might be a good target for this, but I think it would be actually a very, uh, it would be a great benefit to them and to uh, anybody else, obviously, dealing on a day-to-day basis with different uh, or various UN affairs as well. A quick question at the end of this episode for all of you. Do you think that the United Nations will still exist in its current form in 10 years? Yes or no? Well, this is a very good question, and uh, I think I'm going to continue on uh, what Elizabeth has been <laughs> mentioning, my more pessimistic view. Uh, I think that I think it will continue in this form, but um, I will pick up on something that Marcello said, because I, I tend to agree with this, is that multilateralism is taking different shapes and form now. And what I see and what I tell my students uh, in my class on the WTO is that what we are um, increasingly seeing is a development of maybe parallel multilateral systems, which now we call plurilateral. So systems of countries of like interests that get together. So I think the UN in its form in 10 years will most likely be uh, the same. However, we will be seeing a world scene, a world order different. Uh, one of the examples is the BRICS, you know, the, the, the BRICS countries, Uh, now are actually almost forming an institution. They're inviting more countries to join. They have summits. I mean, we are seeing this, you know, increasingly these kind of parallel tracks of multilateralism or plurilateralism. So the UN will stay in its form in 10 years, but I think the world order, the multilateral system that we know will be will be changed. I think I very much agree with Kim with, I guess, maybe putting even a more pessimistic note, provided we don't end up in a major world war in the next couple of years, given all of the the sort of shifts on the, the playing board right now. I think that that, 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 that's right, that that it's going to be largely the same. I think it's a little bit like trying to change the course of an aircraft carrier. It is just such a large institution with so much inertia that I think there will be some sort of slow growth reform. There'll be some kind of changes, especially within the agencies and their activities. But I think the fundamental parts, again, short of some massive rewiring of the system will be relatively similar. I would mostly agree with my two colleagues uh, in that the answer would be a, in fact, I would even go even further and say that it would be a definite yes. The UN would be in 10 years' time in exact same form and shape as it is today, but not necessarily for the right reasons. The reason we used to have a joke inside the UN that even changing a light bulb 
requires so many approvals and so many agreements and changing of documents and so on, that even changing a light bulb is impossible to do. So the UN internally and in its ways of operation would ex be exactly, in my opinion, the same in 10 years' time as it is today, unless, like Elizabeth said, there's a major, obviously, world war or something like that, but assuming that that's not the case. On the other hand, uh, I think, like Kim said, it will be in the same form, but its relevance will continue to decline, right? Because it's challenged from all sides on its multilateralism essential component. So it will be the same, but it will be even less relevant, unfortunately, than it is today. Does the UN model still work? Challenges and prospects for the future of multilateralism. A very recommendable book at the right time. And thank you all for your participation today. Thank you for joining this latest episode of Canada mit See. If you would like to find out more about the work of the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung Canada, check out our social media channels and our homepage at www.ks.de Canada. You can also subscribe to our free newsletter there. Thank you very much and see you next time.